1: I am Dean Linky. another big show for you today. We begin with Christian Labors and the great folks from the ECNL. We'll get to know the ECNL a little bit better, all of their key players on their team. And also have a big media announcement from the ECNL at the end of the interview. From there, we'll go to Big Ten in 10. Remember, we're going to start with Big Ten men's soccer. Last week was Indiana. This week it's Wisconsin. That means a visit with their 11-year top man, John Trask, and part of the law firm now getting it done for Orlando City FC, Chris Mueller. From there, we continue the dialogue about Black Lives Matter and also proud to see that the dialogue is working. Trevor Banks was named the new head coach for Chicago State, which after 30-plus years is returning to Division I soccer. What a story of fighting through adversity to get to this spot. Trevor Banks, you're going to enjoy that interview. Congratulations, Trevor, with a special shout-out to Nicole Hercules for hooking us up with Trevor then two more 30 under 30s Allie Freitas will end the show and right before her Josh Perkins who's with NCFC Youth the club that is also near and dear to me big show and we'll be right back after this message from our presenting sponsor Team Snap.
0: Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help their customers save time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1.
1: Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. I am Dean Linkey and we kick off with all-day ECNL. And we've got a great crew, of course, led by a regular Christian Lavers, the president of ECNL. You've heard me on this program and also on the Coaching Through COVID webinars Call him one of the smartest men in soccer. And as the president, he's going to introduce his team and talk about the future of the ECNL. I turn it over to my good friend, Christian Lavers, president of
2: ECNL. Thank you so much, Dean, for having us on today. We always enjoy talking to you. And I think Today is going to be a great opportunity for everybody to learn a little bit more about the ECNL and specifically the people that make the league what it is and make the league such a special place, at least as far as we're concerned, for players and coaches and clubs. A little bit of background first. The girls league was started way back in 2009. It almost seems like that is just a different lifetime in soccer with all the changes that have happened. And then the Boys League was founded in 2017. So moving forward into this season, and the 2020-21 season, we're looking at close to 30,000 players, boys and girls combined, that will be playing within the ECNL competitions. And that will be on the receiving end of all of the services that the league provides to coaches, to administrators, to referees, to players. And we're really excited about that. And we're really proud of what the league has become. And a big reason for the league's success are all the people sitting on this webinar. At the end of the day, it takes a village, as they say, and it takes an incredible team to do all the things that we do. So I'd like to introduce the the group of people here and let them tell you a little bit about themselves and about uh, their role at the ECNL and some of their thoughts that they have about the ECNL moving forward. And hopefully it'll be something interesting and informative for your viewers. So With that, the first person that I would ask to tell a little bit about himself and his background and his role in the league is Doug Bracken. Doug's the vice president of the boys' ECNL and the vice president of the girls' ECNL. Doug and I got introduced to each other way back in 2008 when we both drew the short straw, I think, when it came to who was going to do the work to get this idea started. We were introduced to each other by a mutual friend told to put something together that maybe helps soccer be better. So I'll turn it over to Doug to give a little more details on that story and about himself.
3: Thanks, Christian. Yeah, I've been with ECNL, both girls and boys, since the beginning. I originally, I played at Ashland University, Division II school in Ohio. And then I had a very abbreviated career in the US ISL, mostly because uh, I had to uh, actually live and try to pay the rent, which US ISL wages wasn't going to do. Then I actually went into the business world for one year and realized that that was not a great path for me. So I got into coaching at the college level, and I did that for about nine years And then by chance connected with a good friend of mine and was able to start Ohio Elite Soccer Academy in Cincinnati. And we are in our 19th year at Ohio Elite Soccer Academy. So I've been in the youth game for quite a long time. I have a pretty deep, perspective because of what Christian said. We kind of started from the beginning. We were all playing each other in state cup and regionals and those kinds of things. And we just felt like there was a better way to do things. So a small group of us came together and chatted over a a long period of time and figured out kind of a structure of what we might want to do, and then we decided to give a presentation to the clubs, to some major clubs in the country to try to get them on board. Interestingly, after all the work we did to put that together, Christian was supposed to do the presentation in Las Vegas and conveniently missed his flight. So I gave the presentation to about 40 clubs. We got a. I walked in at
2: the very end to, to take. Yes, it.
3: right. Christian walked in to get a round of applause at the very end, of course. But a number of big clubs bought into the ideas that we had kind of put together and really had been talking about as a larger and smaller groups over a long period of time. And that's how the girls ECNL was born. It was great that we got that support at the beginning. And then it, it just grew from there. And then we talked about. The boys and putting the boys together and being able to do that I think was kind of the culmination of all of our hopes. You know I'm just excited just to see where the future goes obviously I think on the girls side just to see the level of what the league has been and what it will be it's just really exciting just to be at those games and I think that's the other unique part of what we do is guys like me and Christian are part of the governance and the governing of the league but i'm also out there coaching games and playing in big games in the ECNL and that to me is is the best part so i'm really excited it feels like this coming year is almost a new era on the boys and the girls sides so i'm really excited to have been a part of the beginning of it i feel very fortunate to have been i guess in the right place at the right time to be part of it now just to see it and to honestly see see the players that play in my club participate it's really exciting
2: i'll add a few things dean that first lunch where these ideas were discussed was actually in indianapolis at the united soccer coaches convention where everybody left a meeting and said we can do something different here and we all sat around over whatever lunches we were eating and strategized uh, at least that's what we called it at the time Strategized right, uh, yeah. what we thought would be better and i will add doug doesn't tell it but he was actually a basketball player and a soccer player and as a typical goalkeeper he never mentions he was a goalkeeper i don't know why goalkeepers never say they were goalkeepers when they play but doug was actually a goalkeeper and a long history with i believe soccer plus and and that sort of organization yeah uh, as you came up in coaching
3: we all fancy ourselves as strikers goalkeepers of course I've uh, never seen a
2: goalkeeper playing goal when you just play pickup. They all want to play forward when you. Play
3: that's pickup. exactly right. Yes, the epitome of that, Dean, and you'll appreciate this is Tony DeChico, who's obviously a great mentor of mine. We played a number of staff games, and Tony always played in the field, and he was always open, and he always needed the ball, <laughs> needed the ball. So, but yes, long time with Soccer Plus uh, goalkeeper school for sure. Great. And
2: I think okay. Doug, you forgot to mention how fortunate you are to work with with us. You know, because that was a changing point in your life as well. To uh, yeah, to
3: just to working work. with people. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. no doubt.
2: Thank you, Doug. I'm sure that you'll have some other comments as we go. Second person that I'd like to introduce is Jen Winnigle, who is the commissioner of the league. She's been with the league prior to that when Sarah Kate Nofsinger was uh, our initial commissioner before she moved on to Atlanta United and then to other big things. But Jen, I think, was brought in when Sarah Kate was still here. And when Sarah Kate left to become the marketing director at Atlanta United, Jen stepped into the commissioner's role and has been there now for several years and has done a great job. And so, Jen, I'll turn it over to you to give everybody a little bit of background about yourself and your role.
4: Thanks, Christian. First, happy to be here, excited to just continue to work with this group of people and beyond. A little background about me. I grew up in Northern Virginia, played for a very strong club team. The majority of us were with each other and played from age 8 to 18, which doesn't happen that often or didn't back then. I won't date myself, but now uh, it's becoming more of a thing with, with soccer clubs becoming bigger and more like a business and providing more opportunities across the country. I went on to play uh, college at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University here in Richmond, Virginia. Had an amazing career there, played with a lot of international players. I learned a lot. It was something that I hadn't been exposed to growing up. And I think that I took that on into my next ventures, that which led me here. And just learning from different types of people, different cultures, and really grasping that and trying to figure out how can I take piece of that and apply it to my own life and and my own goals. A year after graduating from VCU, I went on to, well, I guess in between that year, I went on in the business world, like Doug was an accounting manager, was like, eh, I want to be around the game, which led me into an opportunity of coaching at the collegiate level at University of Richmond. And I was there for five seasons, learned a lot. I was a young coach, really enjoyed transitioning from that player mentality to the coaching mentality and learning more about the game and how I view it and trying to teach and inspire the next group of players. I really liked my experience there and I reached a point where I wanted to be challenged more. So it led me into a lunch and into an opportunity of working in the administrative side of athletics back at VCU. It was just an opportunity I couldn't say no to. I wasn't directly looking, but it was something that kind of fell on my lap and I went from there and I was at VCU with the Shaka Smart days. So the energy around the athletics department was incredible, was able to really learn from a lot of different personalities across sports. I was happy there. And then as Christian mentioned, Sarah Kate Knopfinger was the first commissioner here. I had just connected with her. She was a very, very volunteer coach with the University of Richmond. I was still there. And we had just connected. We had similar acquaintances, had played for the same coach growing up, different generations. But just kind of connected on different levels there. Met with her and another guy, Jay Howe, on our executive committee for a lunch, and they kind of talked me into taking a leap. And my last couple of years at the University of Richmond coaching at the collegiate side, I saw the very beginning of the ECNL. I actually recruited at some of the ECNL events, and it's, it's come a long way. So I was like, you know what, this is intriguing. I've really enjoyed moving from now player to coach to the administrative side. And I want to be around sports. I want to get back to the game that gave me so much opportunity. And skate was always just very inspiring, organized chaos and just this like ball of fire that I knew I wanted to learn from. So I said, you know what, let's let's go for it. So I started working with the ECNL in uh, 2014. So I've been here a little over six years. And in my role, it's about a year and a half with skate and just seeing the league grow in that short amount of time was amazing. We just hit the ground running. And I've never learned so much about the inner workings of operating a league from several different levels, from events to the online piece to marketing and branding. So really opened my eyes to a lot of what the ECNL is really about, not just the recruiting side, which I'd been exposed to. Now that I'm here, I'm, I've stepped into the commissioner role. I've been here, I guess, in this role a little over four, about four and a half years now. It's been a very transitional four and a half years in the soccer space in general. And I think with the league, we've expanded in a lot of different ways. We have a counterpart league with the boys. It's been great to just be part of this transition. When I think ECNL, it's what is the next challenge and how is this challenge going to continue to get us to reaching our goal, which is developing the next generation of players, continuing to evolve with the sport and be relevant, and really just offering opportunities to the top players in the country. I'm looking forward to this next season. We are continuing to step up our resources and everything that we offer from a league standpoint. I'm excited to see what challenges lie ahead in this season and how we tackle them.
2: I think I heard a teaser of Jen talking about an international branch of the ECNL for the (laughs) first time. I've never heard that before, but with your international relations background, maybe we can put that into the business plan. One other thing Jen didn't mention is when you started here, you did not have kids and now you have hopefully two up-and-coming young ECNLers. So if you want to give any info about your family and your kids, Jen, that'd be great.
4: Sure. My husband and I have been married almost five years now, and we have two little boys. One is going to be three in October. He's a ball of energy and loves anything that is involved with sports. I think we might need to tame that a little bit, but he keeps us on our toes, that's for sure. And then we have a six-month-old boy that is just as happy as can be ready to run with his big brother and it's going to be a long shot if they're not involved with some type of sport and I hope it's soccer both my husband and I have played and continue to play and as much as we can with the two of them they have changed my life and how I'm prioritizing time and fitting everything in but I wouldn't change it for the world so it's been a lot of fun
2: and I'm remiss for not mentioning Doug's kids one of whom is named after the uh, famous footballer so, Doug, if you want to get a plug in for your future ECNLers as
3: well. <laughs> yeah, I have four kids. One just graduated from college, another in college. And then I have a nine-year-old, that's Xavi, of course, after uh, Xavi Hernandez. And then uh, eight-year-old Max. So my younger ones play soccer, and uh, we'll see you know, how that goes. And actually, my oldest coaches. High school soccer, a lot of soccer in our family.
2: A lot of scarves in your house as well. That's yes, right. So, all right, so thank you, Jen. So Jen, as you mentioned, is the commissioner of the Girls League, and so we'll move over now to the commissioner of the Boys League, the man with the best hair in soccer, always sharp, always spiky, and always looking serious, Mr. Jason Cutney, who joined the league, actually was a coach in the league for a long time on the girls' side, has an extensive background in youth and pro soccer, now is the commissioner of the boys ECNL, which is obviously going through some incredibly positive growth and expansion in all ways, both in clubs and services and everything else. So turn it over to you, to Mr. Cutney, and don't mistake the lack of a smile for the lack of enjoyment. Jason, go ahead.
5: Dean, thanks for having us. Obviously, it's really cool to kind of be part of this and being able to tell our story and, and that'll flesh out hopefully through these stories here today. But my first story is the fact that I actually came at this from a position of not liking Christian or Doug at all. Both of them turned down my club three years in a row for the UCNL. So I harbor a significant amount of resentment, and this is my way of kind of channeling that out. Um, you, you were determined, though. I'll give this, you that. This was the moment I was waiting for to to tell this story. So I grew Get up in line, Jersey. In uh, yeah, I know, it wraps around the block. So I grew up in Jersey, hometown of Bruce Springsteen. That's what we're known for in Freehold. And I'm a big Bruce fan, and... Through New Jersey, you meet a lot of people in the game of soccer. I was a, I was a kid that played for Manny Shellshite, Manny was one of the most influential coaches that I could have imagined having as a kid. I came up through that time when I think it was still club soccer, travel soccer, if you will, before they really went to the mega club. So PDA was forming and matchfit you know, those clubs were coming together at the time that I was really at the end of my tenure as a youth player. But I uh, had a, good, a lot of good opportunities to go overseas with the different levels of U.S. soccer as a kid and really enjoyed my time there and met a coach through the Olympic Development Program years ago named Wade Jean, and Wade was a coach of Duquesne University in Pittsburgh at that time. And my dad and I decided to swing a trip to Pittsburgh and see what it was all about and you know, really fell in love with the city and decided to commit there. So I spent four years at Duquesne. First two years, we were young. I'll just put it that way. We we were good, but we were young and made a lot of young mistakes. But the last two years, we were in the top 15 in the country, which was a really cool experience to be part of something like that. And Wade really was that coach that, you know, he was like Happy Gilmore, where he was the uh, the hockey player playing golf today. Wade was like the skiing coach, coaching soccer today. And he was just a hard skiing hockey guy. And he brought that hard mentality out of the players in Pittsburgh. And I think that's true for Pittsburgh. It's just a blue collar town that I've certainly fallen in love with. After college, I had a chance to go and and get into the pros for a little bit. I played for Charleston Battery my first two years out of school for Chris Ramsey and, and Augie. And I think it couldn't have been a better opportunity for me to go and play for an organization like that. It just felt so professional. You know, it wasn't the MLS I had a lot of injuries at the end of my senior year in college, and that really took me out of the opportunity to go into the draft and into the combine for MLS, which was tough for me. But going to the USL with Charleston was awesome. It was a great organization, very strong, showed you what it was like to be a pro. Chris Ramsey certainly taught me what it was like to be a pro, whether that was in a good way or a really difficult way. It was a great experience for me, and... After my second year in Charleston, I came back into Pittsburgh and picked up a a part-time job at a tennis and racquetball facility, changing water, cleaning toilets, doing things like that. And at the end of my first few months there, I sat down with the ownership group and said, look, you know, tennis and racquetball seem to be dying sports in Pittsburgh. I think maybe if you looked at this as a multi-sport facility, it might make some sense. They encouraged me to write a business plan with them, which I did. And a year later, I agreed to a sweat equity position with them to come in and run that facility. And that really started everything for me. So we converted that facility to a multi-sport, mostly focused on soccer and indoor turf space, but also batting cages, volleyball courts, group exercise studios, you name it. About six months after that, we leveraged the acquisition of the Pittsburgh Riverhounds on that business. And so, you know, I was 23 and all of a sudden in charge of running a, a pro sports franchise, which was interesting. But the opportunity for me was at Pittsburgh at that time, they didn't have a youth program. They had youth soccer camps in the summertime when the pros played, but nothing more sticky throughout the entire year. And so that was what we really worked on building was the Riverhounds Academy. And that was back in 2007 that we started that project. And three years after that, I started the project of Highmark Stadium, which was our, our downtown stadium in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was the hardest, worst three years of my life, for sure. And... Three years that I think I aged until
2: you five. met, Doug.
5: until you, well, met until I met Doug. Doug. Yeah. That's, that's the next chapter of this book, but sure. that was tough. I mean, it was a really tough project. It took a lot out of everybody involved, like any other big project. It, it killed some relationships that made some things really difficult going forward, but there was light at the end of the tunnel and, and we finally made it to that light. And it's a really cool project. actually seeing Highmark Stadium on ESPN two last night for the Riverhounds game was, was really special. We lost on a absolute laser of a goal from Tyler Pascher, who was a player that I signed into Pittsburgh and into the USL years ago. So I, I, I was sure to send him some uh, some fun texts after the game on that. But, you know, just I think that experience in general, of being part of a, a grassroots soccer club in the olden days of the USL, uh, where you played back-to-back games. You know, I was a pro player in USL where you would play Friday, travel through the night, play Saturday, come home and do it all over again the next weekend. But at that same time, I was also running the club and, you know, trying to build the academy. And I think, you know, those, those moments of where you're just never stopping was, was really valuable for me in terms of my career and what, what I wanted to do in soccer. And I looked forward to, you know, bigger opportunities The the staff that I had in Pittsburgh was just awesome. I mean, these guys are like anyone else that works in soccer and everyone that listens to this works in soccer and, and runs clubs. Everyone knows that you wear a million hats every single day. you, grind out everything. You're spending way too much time away from your family. Mostly the people that you work with know more about you than your family members do, but the, you, you kind of create a, a family environment there where you just know that you'll bleed for each other. And that's what we had in Pittsburgh. And so when that club got to the point where, you know, we all felt really good about where it was headed, this opportunity came around for ECNL. And I met with Doug and Christian at one of the meetings in Las Vegas a couple of years ago. And, and we talked about this opportunity. And for me, it was really exciting. It was something that I'm by nature, someone that likes to build things, whether they turn out great or not is, is to be determined. But I saw this as a really cool opportunity on the boys side because of the work that all these people and and many others have done on the girls side for years. You know, the girls ECNL was to me, it was, it was the benchmark. It still is. It, it was just the standard of what the highest level would look like as a youth sports league. And I felt in running Pittsburgh that we were super, super proud to be in the girls' ECNL. And then we were also in the boys' ECNL. And that was the way like, I felt as a, as a club director. And I wanted to try to change that. I wanted it to be a situation where, you know, everyone would just feel whether it was boys or girls, if you were in the ECNL, you stuck your chest out, you knew that you were in the best level league possible with the highest standards, with people that truly cared about the game and what matters for the game not all the BS that's out there for the shiny toys that exist in youth soccer, but true grassroots people that were doing the right thing for the game and making hard decisions. And I wanted to be a part of that. So when that came about, you know, for me, it was definitely a leap of faith to leave what I was so comfortable with, with, which was building a club in Pittsburgh. But I couldn't have asked for a better group of people to work with than what we have here. Even Doug and Christian, I throw them in But, you know, Marissa and Jen and what they've done over the years at the granular level for for UCNL, it's just unbelievable to be part of this and to be working with them is really cool. And I would say just to kind of build on what everyone else said with their families, you know, for me, I, I have two young daughters, three and five, and they certainly teach you how to be a different human being. I became a way better leader. After my five year old was born than before, I wish I would have had her sooner in the sense that from a business standpoint, I wasn't as compassionate I wasn't as caring. I wasn't a person that would would oftentimes give kudos to the people around me that needed it. I wouldn't take time to stop and do things and and help them and and pull them along if need be or pat them on the back when need be. I was just focused on getting it done, you know, and I think oftentimes. For me and and for many of the other athletes that I befriended over the years, when we finally have children, it teaches us how to humanize our efforts and take us out of that war, which is you just got to win at all costs. And so having that, I think, has certainly helped me. And the next 10 years will be the test of whether that that helps me become a better leader.
2: Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. And uh, I think, Dane, hopefully one of the things that's clear here is the wide diversity of background. An experience that there is here in, in the sense of the different experiences and jobs and roles that people have had. And I think that makes our league really unique and really strong because of it. And the last person here to introduce is Marissa LeCotte, who's our events director. And I was reading a book the other day that talks about glue guys on teams, guys that sort of bring the group together. And so I would say Marissa is kind of the glue in a lot of ways that connects the boys and the girls and a lot of what we do because she manages and operates all of our events. And Marissa can answer a billion different questions of the most insane level of detail about what something costs, what it takes to do X, Y, or Z, Or basically, if you have a question about operations in the ECNL, you go to Marissa and you're going to get an answer almost off the top of her head. Marissa, if you want to give a little bit of background on yourself and your role, and I guess we'll start by saying you probably agree with Jason about the difficulties of working with Doug and Jason, but uh, (laughs)
6: we'll
2: leave Jen out of this and, and let you go from there.
6: Thanks, Christian. And Dean, thanks for having us. I grew up in South Carolina. I actually played for... One of our current member clubs, Carolina Elite Soccer Academy for Pierce and Andrew down there. Actually, when CESA first merged the two local clubs, I think I was in high school or so, played my youth career there and then moved on to Marshall University out in West Virginia, go herd. Spent four years there, went through one coaching change. And much like Jason's experience, we were very, very young in the beginning and kind of finished my career there with us actually making the conference tournament, which at that time and for our program was a bit of a bigger deal for our group. After I finished at Marshall University, I actually took an internship with what's now United Soccer Coaches in the coaching education department under Ian Barker. When I got to the NSCAA, there had just been a lot of change and, and turnover and staff. And so I learned a lot through kind of my time as an intern there and then it ended up turning full time. Worked very closely with Ian and Allison there, process oriented type of work, putting on coaching education courses through my kind of areas of the country. Got the opportunity to work the convention for a couple of years, which was always a lot of fun. Just kind of continue to grow my professional network. Really enjoyed my time in Kansas City. It was right when sport in Kansas City was starting to become popular and they just built the new stadium and had the opportunity to work some game day kind of opportunities with them and CONCACAF when they came into town and really started to figure out that I loved operations and process and how things work, which kind of runs, I guess, in my blood. My dad is in manufacturing operations as well. So really just loved it. Kind of through my time at NSCAA, I was kind of ready for a a new challenge after about two or so years. And thought that I wanted to experience college athletics. So I kind of took a leap of faith and went to the University of Minnesota and had a fellowship there with the athletics department. Really enjoyed my time there, but also realized that working in general college athletics, just really missed the game of soccer and I really missed being around the game. General athletics and, and college athletics was just a lot different than I think I expected, but was happy that I had the opportunity to try it out and ultimately found myself after a year at Minnesota found myself here in Richmond moved to Richmond from Minnesota made the the cross-country Drive Christian and Doug interviewed me and actually Jen we started at the same time a little bit over six years ago now was really just trying to be a sponge as much as I could really looked up to Sarah Kate and everything she had done And was doing for the league at that time, even though it was brief, about a year and a half. And then she moved on, really got to build a strong relationship with Christian and Doug and Jen through kind of that transition period where we saw a ton of growth. When I started here, the ECNL was just the girls, 74 clubs, uh, five national events, a playoffs, finals, and a training camp. I think now between the boys and the girls, we have over 50 types of programming or programming events over the course of the year. And I've really enjoyed kind of the new challenges that come with the ECNL boys and really trying to provide an opportunity for those top players to see a new type of event experience, which is part of my job that I really, really enjoy. Just looking forward to where the ECNL goes next. We saw a lot of growth this past year. And really excited to just hopefully get back out there soon and get back to providing amazing events for our member clubs and creating new experiences with those so
2: thank you marissa dean that's our core team there's other people that could not get on this that are really important to what we've done i think when we started in 2009 doug and i were doing this in our spare time i won't even say what our first budget was but i'm not sure you could buy a car for it Now we've expanded the team, I think, to to 10 people. All right, it's great to get to know your team, and you're right, we are going to get to know a lot more members of your team
1: because anytime you have growth, you got to do one important thing, like what we do at United Soccer Coaches, although we do it 52 times a year, once a week. Beginning in August, ECNL has got some big news. What's going to happen, Christian?
2: Well, you're right, Dane. We've set our sights on the massive media empire, so we're going to be launching a podcast in August where twice a month, You can hear from people at the ECNL, all of our leadership and staff, directors and coaches across the country, players in our league, and where we'll be talking about any and all things that impact youth soccer players, the youth soccer environment, and the trajectory of the game, both from a player perspective and the game generally. So we're really excited to share that, begin that here in a couple of weeks.
1: Okay, we got to know ECNL. We heard the big news about a biweekly podcast coming. So let's end with just going around the room and asking each of you what ECNL means to you. We'll start with Doug.
3: To me, ECNL means transforming youth soccer. Jen?
4: To me, the ECNL means the opportunity to raise the game and, and evolve the game for
6: the next generation.
5: Jason? To me, the ECNL means an unwillingness to accept anything but being the best. Marissa?
6: To me, the ECNL means creating a community of top clubs and players.
1: And we end where we started with Christian Labors.
2: To me, the ECNL means empowering people to be their best.
1: Christian Labors and his crew always at their best. Great to get to know the ECNL team a little bit better. Coming up next, we'll continue our look at Big Ten in Ten. As you know, I'm been with the big 10 network for a long time we're going to start with the big 10 men's soccer and we're going to move to the other leagues across the country particularly not knowing how much soccer we're going to see the wisconsin badgers john trask and chris mueller now getting it done for orlando city fc when we return being a coach means being a lot of things mentor teacher role model motivator leader organizer of course, it's not easy to be all of those things. You need help, and who better to help you than an association of fellow coaches. Membership with United Soccer Coaches includes access to over $500 worth of e-learning courses, an improved online resource library with more than 1,000 activities, session plans and articles, $1 million worth of liability insurance, and a whole lot more. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join and start your free 30-day introductory membership today united soccer coaches your association for all things coaching welcome back to the united soccer coaches podcast where once again i'm able to cross over between btn and united soccer coaches and share with you another visit with a big 10 men's soccer program last week was indiana this week it's wisconsin led by their top man John Trask, a former player at Indiana, now in his 11th season with the Badgers. And Chris Mueller, who is lighting it up for Orlando City FC down in the bubble as part of MLS, is back. Chris Mueller, part of the law firm at Wisconsin, one of the all-time points leaders, one of the all-time great Badgers. John Trask and Chris Mueller join me and the professor Chris Monroe, and we began by asking John Trask if we do play, if we can play, what kind of Badger team will we see?
7: We're excited. A lot of guys have gotten healthy. We've got some excellent newcomers, and, you know, looking forward to coaching Mitch Guitar and, and Patrick Gim and some of these guys going into their senior seasons, and hopeful that we'll be back in the top of the Big Ten like we were during Chris's tenure here. And, you know, we're all hopeful, depending on the virus, of, of how the season will play out. But, but we feel very good about the upcoming squad.
8: Last year, team decimated by injuries. What lessons did you try to impart to your guys, and how proud were you uh, of some of the unheralded guys who were able to step up through the course of the season?
7: You know, we got a lot of minutes into a lot of younger players, but but we were decimated, and you never, as a coach, want to use – injuries as an excuse, but I've never in all my years of being around collegiate soccer, even professional soccer, dealt with that many injuries. And, you know, I think we'll be stronger for it. We battle through a lot of adversity, but having said that, you know, we only lost to Penn State. We lost to them twice in our last six games. So, Toward the end of the season, I think the culture was starting to kind of turn and we were becoming a better team. We've always prided ourselves on good defense and, and some clever attacking play, which I think Chris can attest to. And I think we'll be back there. I think the 2020 Badgers are ready to compete for a Big Ten championship.
8: Well, speaking of Chris, we'll, we'll get to his outstanding play in the MLS in a second. But just for some of the outsiders, can you help us understand the amount of growth he made between that sophomore and junior season, his first half of his time in Madison and, and really his junior and senior year as a Badger?
7: I think that's the great thing about the college environment. Uh, you know, sometimes gets lost with a lot of kids having the opportunity to move on to the pro ranks earlier these days. And, and for some players, that's appropriate. Chris was obviously an extremely skilled player coming out of Chicago. I think physically he developed, and I think our weight training program and conditioning program. But I think Mentally, It was never a question of whether Chris had the technique and the tactical skill to play at the top of the big 10 or, or on. But I do think he'd be the first to admit some of the maturing process. And, and he was young when he came to us. He, he was one of those guys who wasn't 18 years old yet when he arrived on campus, but it's always fun for us as college coaches to watch that development over a four year period. If, if we're fortunate to coach him for four years. And uh, nothing surprises us with uh, how well Chris is doing at the next level.
1: Chris Mueller, you heard me mention the law firm Mueller, Barlow, Segbers,
9: and Catalano. That had legs. How special was that group and that team? Yeah, it was obviously really special having gone down and ended up winning that Big Ten tournament for the first outright one, I think, in school history it was. And uh, obviously, along with those with those guys that you mentioned here, we had a group of guys who were just really bought into what we were doing uh, I think we had a lot of belief that was going around the locker room and it showed for itself. I think that we could have gone a little bit deeper than the Sweet 16. We might have gotten a little unlucky, but all in all, it was it was a great season and it was a, a memorable team for sure.
8: Well, speaking of your development as a Badger, you know, you're in your third season at Orlando City. You're already tearing things up with four goals, you know, doing great for coach Oscar Pareja. You were very candid about how uh, the second half of last season, you, you weren't getting the Playing time, you weren't really sure why. Uh, but obviously, you've been able to bounce back and, and have a great start to your third campaign. Can you share some insight into how you dealt with that adversity and what it was like for you both then and obviously now?
9: Yeah, I think that that just comes down to to trusting in your process and in believing in yourself during the tough times, right? Uh, obviously, like you mentioned, I wasn't playing as much as necessarily I might have liked during the the last ten year of my last season, but I continue to work hard and just focus on the process. I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in myself and having brought in a good coach, like you mentioned with Oscar Pereja, uh, we've been working really well together. And and he believes in me. He gives me confidence to go out and and do what I can do on the field. But like Tras said as well, how I matured in school, I think it shaped me and and helped me become who I am to become a good player now at the next level for sure, what I learned at school and and how I matured from a 17-year-old then to being 21 and being able to handle my own.
1: JT, what a start from Mr. Mueller. Four goals in four games. We see him right behind you on the screen. What does this start, and what does he mean for you and the Wisconsin legacy?
7: You know, I, he goes down as the all-time assist uh, leader in, in Big Ten history for first season with 20 assists. And as I've always told Chris, you know, he's a dual threat. He's not just a goal scorer, and he's not just an assist machine. He, he can do both. And uh, I think as time goes on in the pros and, and hopefully national team call ups will follow as well, we're just excited to continue to see his growth. And, you know, Jason Christ, who I coached in Dallas at the same time that I coached his coach now, Oscar Perea, Poppy, I think Poppy's going to be great. You know, he's a legend of a player, but he, as Chris has told me point blank, you know, while there's a system, there's freedom. And I think that's something Chris would say was the same at Wisconsin. You know, you had some freedom to go out and do the things you wanted to do on the field while working within the framework of a team. And I think Oscar does a great job. And I think he's a perfect coach for Chris at this point. I think it's kind of a match made in heaven and you never know as a player moves onto the pro ranks, who's going to be working with him. And I think Jason Christ and Miles Joseph, Chris's first year, and then obviously Oscar now taking the reins in Orlando has just been, it's been great for Chris and obviously for the whole team. You know, they're moving on and MLS is back and, and we're excited for the Orlando City
8: group. Real quick, Chris, last question. Given JT and, and how he coached you, can you compare and contrast his style and his method with uh, your current coach now, Oscar Pareja?
9: Yeah, I think that one thing that I can definitely take away from both of them is that I think they're both obsessed with the game a little over the top in a, in, a, in a way that I like to kind of relate myself to as well. You're just so in love with the game. Oscar's the same way. And like he said, he, him and Tras both give that that confidence in their players, that free reign where there is a system of discipline, but it's also like go out, be creative, do what you do, play your own game and, and hopefully good things will come. So
7: I have one quick question for Chris and I asked him this the other day. I'm going to follow it up again. I, I asked him, you know, I saw that he got substituted in the second game after he already had two goals and, and I said, do you get as mad at Poppy or, or Oscar as you used to get at me when I brought you out of the game? Chris, what was the answer to that the other day?
9: I said no, just because I know in college that I could go back into the game and now I couldn't. So, <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good final question there from JT. I'm going to ask you in 15 seconds, Chris Mueller, when you think about Wisconsin, what does it mean to you? Got a special place in my heart. I think that it definitely made me who I am today. I learned so much about myself, and Madison has a deep place in my heart, and I, and I love that place with with everything in in my soul. The Wisconsin Badgers, John Trask, and part of the law firm Chris Mueller
1: still getting it done now in MLS. Thanks so much, guys, for being a part of Big Ten and 10. I do appreciate it. Thank you, you guys. Certainly hope we do see more of Chris Mueller, and definitely want to see J T. Keith T. Meyer, Aaron Holbein, and the wisconsin badgers john Tras spent time at uic chicago state is returning to d1 men's soccer and they've hired trevor banks what a story this young man has so proud of him stay with us to hear trevor bank's story the new head coach at chicago state the cougars when we return Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. It's a big show, but it gets even bigger now. Nicole Hercules has done an amazing job as the chair for the Black Coaches Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. We want to continue the dialogue about Black Lives Matter, and we want to continue to try to see more black coaches getting jobs. When we talked to Shaka Daly over a month ago about this important topic, there were just nine men of color, leading Division One men's soccer teams. Now there are 11. The 11th, Trevor Banks, who was named the head coach at Chicago State, where after 30-plus years with a vacancy, they shut down the program in 1988. They are returning to D1. They'll be in the Western Athletic Conference, and they've hired Trevor Banks to be their top man. Trevor, thanks for being with us, and I know you, like me, big fan of Nicole Hercules, right? Yeah, yeah, she's a, she's a great person, so
10: uh, I appreciate you guys reaching out and everything like that.
11: Well, I know that um, it shouldn't matter what color you are, but certainly the fact that uh, when we interviewed Shaka Daily over a month ago and there were only nine at black head coaches, that's not enough with the number of black players playing. We need more. Your number 11 is progress, right? I think
10: it is. I think it shows that ADs are are starting to take a little bit more of a look at certain things, and it's not just about the fact that we're black. But we also have the ability to uh, to do certain roles, you know what I mean? So I think it's super important, and I think it's actually a really good uh, step in the right direction, at least especially in these times right now, that ADs are realizing that, and, and they're starting to take more chances on uh, people that look like myself.
11: So Nicole Hercules said that you've got a great story growing up, and I kind of want to just let it run here, let you rip a little bit, talking about where you grew up and some of the things you've gone through to get to this point. So can you go ahead and tell us your story, Trevor?
10: Yeah, I can speak a little bit on that for sure. I I grew up, obviously, with, with nothing. So to be where I am in life right now is amazing. So growing up, I went through... Just kind of growing up in the ghetto, growing up in foster care, not really figuring out, like uh, not really uh, knowing what I'm going to eat at night, what what's going to go on the next day, if we're going to have lights, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that was kind of like the childhood. And then uh, my mom went to jail when I was in eighth grade, just trying to take care of her family. And uh I ended up going into foster care. So throughout that time, I, I ended up picking up this sport of soccer, and it kind of leveled me out a little bit, at least having somewhat of a home uh, that was consistent kind of use that as a catalyst to do what I've been able to do throughout this time. And so for me, it was a tough childhood, but it was also like a breath of fresh air because I think it prepared me for life. What I mean by that? All the challenges that we go through on a daily basis. I think that what I went through as a kid, nothing I go through now compares to that. So I always remind myself of that and just kind of fighting through those moments that I'm just trying to figure out. Everything, even guiding myself through this uh, time right now with being a head coach, there's a lot of difficulties, especially with the new program and all of that stuff. Learning a new, learning a new system, learning in the school, learning what they want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You go through a lot just figuring those pieces out. And I think uh, I always remind myself, even it's been a stressful couple of weeks, but I just remind myself that there's nothing that. I can go through an audit that I haven't been through already as a kid, you know, just kind of growing up. So that would be a bit about my story. Just not, not having the, the resources that some people do have these days to get through it and just kind of working my way up that ladder, literally taking it step by step and just kind of grinding would be me, you know?
11: Wow. What an amazing story. So what, City. You said you grew up in the ghetto. What city? And then what ended up happening to your mom and dad? Can you fill in those blanks? And then also tell us about the family that you got the most support from, your foster family that helped uh, screenboard you on to great success. You went on to play college soccer. Uh, that's like four questions I just gave you there, Trevor. But uh, sure, fill sure. in the blanks, yeah. So my
10: mom and dad both actually passed away. My dad when I was younger, which is one of the reasons I went into foster care. My mom passed away about six years after she got out of uh, jail, which she was amazing uh, to be fair to, to have a woman go from being in jail to absolutely having nothing when she gets out to she actually became a stay-at-home nurse by the time she did pass away so she did a lot of amazing things in that that small amount of time which obviously shows that she changed her life a massive amount i think the the family that took care of me the most is actually my best friend's family LaQuinn Andrews. i remember when his parents called and they're like we want you to come in and stay with us your last couple of years of uh high school instead of doing the house-to-house-to-house type situation. His parents called, and and I literally just, like, we we would swap places. I would sleep on the bed, he would sleep on the floor, I'd sleep on the floor, we'd sleep on the bed. And we did this for about a year and a half uh, prior to going away for college. But I think his parents just kind of stabilized my life a bit with having an actual home that I would go to, actual hot meals that I would come back to and things like that. And I think that they kind of set me up to make sure that, like, I, I was successful in life. And, and when I obviously had the opportunity to go and play collegiate soccer, I went to Kentucky Wesleyan College. It was just a great opportunity. They were, they were behind me 110%, making sure visits and stuff like that, making sure that I just got the right things out of, uh, the, the opportunity and all of that stuff. So I, I would save them for sure because they just kind of stabilized my life because right? it was going a million different ways, uh, with a million different things going on. And they're just like, Hey, Here's your home. This is what we're going to do for you. It was awesome. And there was like nothing that they asked in return. And still to this day, Lacuna is literally my brother. And so uh, I would say that his family definitely stabilized me for sure.
11: Incredible story. Being so young with your mom going away to jail and your dad already gone. Do you remember one really, really low point where you were either homeless or witnessed a crime or something really, really crazy, Trevor? Yeah, I would say I think the
10: low point for me in that whole time was. Probably the end of my freshman year, I was with this family and I had gotten into an argument with the dad, right? And myself had been staying out at this place, it's called The Lodge. And it, I guess that's what the family just had us stay, which for me was kind of a weird thing because, like, they, they had their own house, but we stayed out, like, I just lived on this place called The Lodge. And so it was, it was like a dormitory type place. And, uh, the people that went to school there were like these, all, all these, like, big massive like uh christians and they were all cool people don't get me wrong but it was just weird for me because they were all like about probably 10 years older than i was and so they were they were living their own lives and figuring out their own piece but i'm in foster care and i'm staying out with these guys and not really at the house where my foster parents are and stuff like that and so what what i'm getting at is the the low for me was uh there was there was an incident that happened at school the school i was going to at the time was called uh, como high school and there was an incident that happened at the school and i think that like it was a low for me to have like the parents who you've been like trying to gain trust and all this stuff that they didn't believe me at all. And, and then the truth actually ended up coming out. And so it was uh it was kind of a brutal moment. uh And it showed me, for me, it showed me that like not many people are going to be behind you, even if they seem like they're going to be behind you, you or they act as if they're behind you would be the, the best way to say that. So, you just have to grind no matter what on your own, and you, you just have to figure out things on your own. But, like, that was a disappointing moment because that was actually, like, the breaking point for me, and I, like, I just couldn't be there anymore because I felt like there was, like, no trust even after the truth came out with this whole situation. It was insane for me. So I think that was a little moment because it showed me that, like, I really have to go through this by myself. Uh, there's going to be certain people that are there, but I'm, I'm in this by myself. I'm the only person I can really trust. I'm the only person that I can really, like, count on and all of that stuff, even though you think that you can count on certain people that are in your life.
11: I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing your final two years where you're with that great family where you have now a brother that I'm sure you keep in touch with. And i, I got to believe Kentucky Westland also was a, a saving grace. Talk about your time there and then where you've gone since then, finding yourself at Chicago State.
10: Yeah, so my time at Wesleyan was great. A guy by the name of Scott Poole was the head coach there then, and uh, he obviously brought me in. He was a great dude, but he ended up leaving the program about like, two years after being there, and a guy by the name of Andy Donahue took over. The guy that kind of kept me there and really kept me, like, focused was a guy by the name of Jamie Duval, And Jamie is the, actually the women's head coach there now, and he was just a great dude. He made sure that I stayed focused. He made sure that, like, I continue to have goals and, and how and, and help me achieve those goals too. Jamie was just the guy that was just literally on me about like every little thing, making sure that I stayed disciplined and all this stuff. So I think that having Jamie in my corner was massive to me, like actually staying there. And then after that you, you try to do the whole pro thing. You're you're going all over the place, trying out for this team, training with this team, doing this, sitting a bench here, sitting on a the bench there and, and then you have to figure out life and so a guy by the name of Nathan Mason gave me a call and he was just like, look, I have this grad citizenship. I'd absolutely love for you to come in and, and just be our goalkeeping guy and all this stuff. I was just like, great. Like, let's look at it. So I ended up starting my coaching career at uh, William Woods University. Then I went down to um, Barry University and again, still trying to play and all this stuff, but went down to Barry University with uh, Steve McCrath on the men's side. And so I was there for a year and then you really have to figure out because I wasn't making any money at all at this point. And so now I really had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had a buddy by the name of Paul Roger did the job with uh, the Long Island Rough Riders in the USL. I was just like that that would be a great spot, but I needed more money and uh job at the United States Merchant Marine Academy assistant job opened up. And so it was like a perfect fit and it gave me like the groundwork to really get out there and learn. And, and I was told this actually on my first recruiting trip by Russell Payne it's really funny he has to remember this he said to me like figure out something you're really good at and like legitimately stick to that and be really good at that be absolutely phenomenal obviously don't fall off on the other areas but be phenomenal at that so what did I say that was back then I was just like well I'm a good recruiter how can I blossom with this and so I just kind of ran with it and just figured out every way to be really good at recruiting that I could be. but gave me the opportunity to go to Villanova when Zach Thornton left. And uh, Zach was a, is a good friend of mine, and he calls me up, and he's like, I'm leaving, and I told Tom that he should connect with you and everything like that. So it was great. It ended up working out really well. But at Villanova, I thought I was a good recruiter, and then I learned how to recruit at Villanova, if that makes sense. Working with guys by the name of Mike Montrose, who's at American now, and then also Tom Working with those guys, you just learn a lot in that small amount of time frame that I was there. So I was able to bring a little bit of a different attitude whenever I got the job at Brown. Pat called me, he gave me a ring, and was just like, "Look, I need a recruiter," and and it was up, kind of up my alley. After being here for a few months, he gave me the ring, and was I was I remember where I was. I was in Mexico, and he was just like, "Look, I I'm trying to figure out um, this whole situation, but we're, we're going to promote you to associate that coach." I was just like, "Okay, great." It is awesome so it's a, it was a great step in that sense and, and I think that for me what I did is I just kind of held everything by the, by the bullhorns and just kind of held on and I was just like I'm, I'm going to get after this I'm going to make sure that I know that I'm good at certain areas and don't get me wrong I mean I have my USSFA. I can I can definitely coach and I can definitely do all the office stuff and things like that but like my bread and butter is definitely the recruiting side of things and that's what I love to do and that's what I'm good at and, and I think uh, Chicago State recognized that as well uh, which is one of the reasons L.A. gave me a call to express his interest in having me a part of the, their program and, and starting this thing back up.
11: Everything that you've gone through, to just where you are initially as a youngster, and then even your coaching journey, a lot of great names in there, Russell Payne, Steve McRatham, those are great people all the way around, and you made a few more great people in there. Uh, with that, when you got the word that you were going to be named Chicago State head coach, knowing everything you've gone through, tell us what it meant from your heart. I think I think the
10: Before the initial call to be named a head coach, I think that's what the call where it was like. I was just like, wow, this is for real. I got a random call from uh, the AD on like the Tuesday night, and we were just having a conversation about stuff. And he was asking me about other jobs. and, And then so the next morning... I called him back, uh, or the next day I called him back to let him know that I wasn't going to take the other jobs and all this stuff and that I wasn't going to go that direction. And he, he said to me, he just, he's just on the phone and he's screaming. He's like, you're our guy. You're our guy. I just got off the phone with our president. It was great. I told her how much like I love you and all this stuff. It's like, you're our guy. So like just the excitement to hear in his voice for having me showed me that I was making the right decision. And I think that like for me, Obviously, the ultimate goal was to become a head coach at the Division One level and put myself in a position to where I can put my own uh, fill in things and my team out there, and, it, and it's me, and I have the opportunity to do that. But not only that, I, I have the opportunity to do it at a place like Chicago State. I think Chicago State is such a special place. If you've done your research and the people that listen have done their research as well, it's an institution located in South Side Chicago. So it's in a black community, which is a massive catalyst for me. For what I want. So it, it kind of opens up some more doors for me. And so I'm super excited about just being able to connect with the community a little bit more and all that stuff. And considering some of the other opportunities that I had, this is the one that kind of fit me, uh, culturally as well as opportunity the best. So when you look at everything and you break it all down, I'm extremely, extremely excited about the, uh, the opportunity. I, whenever I got the call, the actual final call to say, hey, we want to name you the head coach. I was ecstatic, you know. I'm still ecstatic today. It's just like, it's weird because I'm, I'm, I'm working my, my buns off right now. It's, it's been insane. So I'm, uh, a lot of craziness trying to put together a team for this, uh, 2020 season.
11: February, this is fantastic. Finally, and you already said it best. You got this job because of your abilities it has nothing to do with your color of your skin. However, we need to continue the dialogue, particularly in today's world of social injustice. Let's end with your message as we continue to, have a voice and use this platform with the support of Nicole Hercules and the Black Coaches Advocacy Group. What is your message about making sure that we continue this dialogue? I think
10: the first thing is people have to take the initiative, right? And I think that if, uh, if we as a whole take an initiative to learn, to understand the other side, it's massive. I think then the next step is going to be having those uncomfortable conversations. Not, no matter what, not being willing to have those uncomfortable conversations is going to be huge. And then the final step is listening. I think that a lot of people will go out and want to have their own words and say uh, this, 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 but they aren't actually listening to the other person speak. And I think that if we have those three initiatives right there and, and we speak on those like that uh, where we're taking a step, have, being willing to have those uncomfortable conversations but also being willing to listen. Uh, within that, I think you're gonna see some change. And I don't think it's gonna happen right away, don't get me wrong by any means. But I do think over time, you will see that next generation understand it a bit more, which would then sort of subside the racial injustice side to things, and you'll start pe- see people rise above that. And I think that that's the important piece right now. I think a lot of people are forgetting, which for me, I, I, I say that day in and day out, even to my boys at Brown. I remind them, a million different times and I'm gonna do the same thing with my boys at uh Chicago State, just reminding them that just because you're either black, white, Asian, whatever it is, doesn't mean that you, you you're you're above whatever situation there is in front of you. And I think that uh you'll see people stick together more if they follow those three protocols in my opinion.
11: Trevor Banks, I need one more favor if it's okay with you. I'm in Chicago right. a lot working at the Big Ten network. I want to come meet you. I want to come see you and visit you at Chicago State. Will I be allowed to do that?
10: You will. You will. You're always welcome, for sure, my man. It would be, be an absolute pleasure to have you. Maybe we can get you in a booth doing your thing or something like that over there. So.
11: Oh, that would be awesome. I would love that. Trevor Banks, the new top man at Chicago State. They're coming back to D1. Let's hope we get through this COVID stuff and see you out there. Congratulations. Thanks so much for opening your heart. and and sharing your story. It's proof that good things happen to good people. Trevor Banks,
10: congratulations, sir. I appreciate it. I appreciate you for having me. Thank you very much for reaching out and uh, us getting this whole thing going. I really appreciate it.
1: Wow, what a great, great story. Lost his dad at a young age. His mom went to prison when he was in the eighth grade. Bouncing around, foster parents, found the right parents, got to college, worked, grinded, got it done. Congratulations, Trevor Banks. Alright, enjoyed that. United Soccer Coaches is proud to announce that Verizon has signed a multi-year partnership that will make the technology giant the official innovation, wireless technology, and 5G partner of the association. Verizon will become the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches College and High School Rankings as well as, quote, from the training ground, end quote, weekly educational email toolkit curated by the United Soccer Coaches Education Department. Verizon's support of United Soccer Coaches will allow the association to continue its mission of providing programs and services that enhance, encourage, and contribute to the development and recognition of soccer coaches, their players, and the game we love through the pillars of advocacy, education, and service. Thank you, Verizon, the newest partner of United Soccer Coaches.
11: Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. I love doing this podcast and it's you know anything about me, I love saying, how about North Carolina FC? Longtime voice, the first the Carolina Railhawks and then the switch to North Carolina FC. Of course, Castle was one of the premier youth soccer programs. They merged with a couple other youth clubs into North Carolina FC, arguably the biggest club now in North America. So anytime one of the 30 under 30s has that North Carolina FC name next to him. They get a little extra, mm, they get a little extra something, something. You know what I'm talking about, Josh Perkins? I do. (laughs) And, of course, you're a staff coach for North Carolina FC, that great youth system. It is a big club, but it is a great club, isn't it, Josh?
12: It, It definitely is. A lot of great people.
11: What drew you to North Carolina
12: FC youth? How did you find your way here? Well, my wife actually ended up getting a job teaching in North Carolina, and I reached out to a few different clubs. Ultimately, the one that ended up being the best fit for me and for where I wanted to grow what I wanted to grow into ended up being
11: NCFCU. All right, we've got bigger ties than just North Carolina FC, and how about North Carolina FC? As you know, I started my career in Colorado Springs long before you were ever born, but with U.S. soccer, you spent time in Colorado Springs. Josh, let's get to know you a little bit better, where you grew up, where you went to college. And, um, how you got that coaching bug. So don't, don't skip out on anything. Okay, Josh.
12: Well, I grew up in the North Metro area of Denver. I grew up playing soccer. I was the odd one out in the family, you would say. I grew up with a family of football players. Eventually, I got the bug. I wanted to continue playing. I went out to Christian college for a year and played soccer out there and missed home, missed Colorado. Ended up coming back and moving to Colorado Springs to play at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Once I moved back, I was involved with, like, their Parks and Rec Department, kind of helping set up their youth soccer program, checking in referees, helping coaches, things like that. And I decided I wanted to be a little bit more hands-on involved in the player development aspect of it. So I reached out to a couple of guys in Colorado Springs at Pride Soccer Club down there. Really, that's kind of how everything kicked off. Great people. They really got me to fall in love with coaching and now it's kind of everywhere I've been. It's been something I wanted to continue
11: to do. So tell me about this football tie-in. So did you have brothers and a dad that played football? Like how much uh, in American football were they? Well, it started with my
12: grandfather. He played for the Dallas Cowboys for two years in the 60s and was quite popular there. My dad, played in high school, and then my brother played for Colorado University, the University of Colorado.
11: So he was with the Buffaloes. Who was his coach at the Buffaloes? Hawkins. Okay, yeah. So not too long ago then. What position? He played uh, safety, a defensive back. You never played football? Was it always soccer, or did you play a little bit of football? I played a little
12: bit when I was probably 10 or 11, Not really anything in the middle school or high school.
11: Okay, so you already said that it was your wife that drew you to North Carolina. So how did you meet your wife? What was the job that drew her to North Carolina? We met at a water
12: park. We were both lifeguards in Colorado. We worked the same area of the pool one day, so that's how we met. She did Teach for America, which helps. It takes people from non-education backgrounds, and it transitions them to teaching in lower-funded areas. We really just kind of had a list of 10 places, and out of that list, we could have been placed anywhere. And North Carolina, specifically Eastern North Carolina, was one of the places that we had on my list. Not really knowing anything about it, this is where we got placed. So that's what brought us out here. She did her time with Teach for America and... She has transitioned into working human resources
11: at the soccer club. Okay, very good. Now, I will say when I think about North John FC Youth, there are a couple names that pop into mind, but one that I immediately think of is Gary Butte, who arguably might be one of the best CEOs out there for youth clubs and all the intricacies of growth and how you manage that growth. Have you had a chance to interact with your CEO, Gary Butte, at all? I have. I've met him a few times,
12: and I would agree. It's just how hands-on he is with everything, how he cares about the little details. He loves to be out on the field, whether it's for our back-to-soccer program that we're doing now or whether it's something as little as challenge tryouts for one of our programs. He's out on the field. He's out there interacting with players. You can just tell he really cares about what he's doing.
11: So what made you say, hey, I want to sign up and I want to try to be part of this 30 Under 30 program? I'd looked at it a few times before and
12: really kind of I've been a lot of places and when I did it, I'd only been at North Carolina for two years, but I was really looking for being as young as I am, wanting someone to kind of mentor me, someone to help me kind of continue to grow as a coach. That's what initially drew me in. My age group director, Taylor Adcock, went through the program last year and she enjoyed it. She was kind of the one that convinced me to pull the trigger. Well, we
11: enjoyed Speaking with Taylor as part of the United Soccer Coaches podcast and Joy speaking with you. What's been the best part of being part of the 30 Under 30 program so far for you?
12: The people going to the convention and then just meeting all the different 30 Under 30 members, getting their backgrounds, getting to hear their story, getting to hear why they're passionate about soccer, getting to hear what areas of soccer they're passionate about has been really amazing
11: for me. Now that you've settled in as a youth coach, I like to ask this big picture kind of looking into the future? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? What do you want to be doing? Hopefully coaching soccer somewhere still. I know in the long run, I eventually
12: want to kind of set up and run a club in a rural or urban area where they might not have access to high quality soccer and be able to provide them high quality coaching, high quality a high quality experience with as little of your as possible, whether that be financial, whether that be language. That would be kind of the big picture goal.
11: You strike me as a coach who leads by example, and in that I applaud the fact that you're not a big bragger, you're not, look at me, here I am. You're more, particularly in that last answer, talking about going out to a, a rural area and trying to help maybe some people that don't have access to soccer at the highest level. Knowing all of that, what would you say – If I were to ask, for instance, some of your peers, what do you think they would say about you and your approach to the game?
12: That I really care about the players. I really care about them developing, not only as players, but as people. Hopefully that they enjoy working
11: with and around me. I like the fact that you can say a lot without saying a lot. And I mean that sincerely. I like your approach even to this interview because you don't throw in the ands. You just keep it simple, and and I dig that. So with that, you mentioned people, United Soccer Coaches, has meant everything to me. What's it meant to you as a youngster in this business?
12: How it helped me grow, whether it's been through the courses, the national diploma was one of the first ones I had ever done, the conventions, just kind of getting to meet other people and seeing different ideas. The United Stocks Precious has really opened my eyes to how kind
11: of big the sport is. Finally, just for giggles and a little bit of fun here, Mr. Perkins, when you found out you're doing this with me, you know that I've caught some games with Andrew Tate, a fellow coach with NCFC Youth. Any way you can rate his uh, abilities in the broadcast booth for me? Oh, 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he gets a 10 out of 10, so I, that must mean I get about a 5 out of 10 that i got to improve. Uh... Oh, no, you get a 10 out of 10, too. It's the partnership. Give and take. You guys got to work together. Oh, that's very kind of you, and uh, I hope to see you out of the game, I and mean, I just got word today that USL championship is returning. I know you guys are back out there on the field, you know, doing the social distancing, but doing it right. It's just great to finally get back on the field, right? Oh, I definitely agree. For me, as someone who likes to be doing something all the time,
12: being kind of locked in a little apartment has been uh,
11: less than ideal. Well, close it out for me, though, knowing that you're coaching these youth and knowing that we have a pro team Obviously, different players have different aspirations, but it really is a great pyramid leading to the top. It's got to make you feel pretty good being a part of an organization that has an outlet where a guy like Dre Fortune or Manny Perez or Nazi Abdalwi can come through the system and then make a living professionally. Definitely,
12: and just kind of being able to have those players there all the way down to the players that I work
11: with, being able to see that that is a real possibility I think is huge. All right, Mr. Perkins, pleasure. How about North Carolina FC and how about North Carolina FC youth? Appreciate you being here. One of our 30 Under 30 superstars and being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Snap. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
1: We return. We wrap up the show as we meet another 30 Under 30. Ali Freitas is next. Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on
7: Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to
5: use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I
8: think TeamSnap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found.
11: Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by TeamSnap. My favorite part of the show, as we get to meet two more outstanding members of the current 30 under 30 class by way of United Soccer Coaches. We're now pleased to be joined by Ali Tratus. She is a 2008 Nevada United Girls Coach and Academy Director out in the great state of Nevada. Allie, thanks for being on the program.
13: Thanks for having me, Dean. I appreciate it.
11: Let's get your story. So where did you grow up? When did you know you loved soccer? When did you know you wanted to be a coach? Where did you go to college? Give us all the good stuff.
13: I grew up in Nevada, northern Nevada, not Las Vegas like everyone thinks about when they think about Nevada. So closer up towards Lake Tahoe, uh, beautiful area, a town called Gardnerville, Nevada. So super small on the soccer landscape side of things. Um, The closest kind of metropolitan area is Reno, Nevada. Grew up through the youth system in Carson City and Reno. Played competitively since the age of nine or so, um, but have been playing since probably four years old. Just fell in love with it, never really turned back. And so grew up playing club in in Northern Nevada, like I mentioned, spent a little time going over the hill to Sacramento to play a little bit. But after high school, I attended the San Francisco State University and played there my freshman year, after which time I transferred back to the University of Nevada, ran into a little bit of a hiccup, found out I had an interesting heart condition I never knew about. And so my uh, collegiate, I guess, playing with NCAA kind of ended there, transitioned more into the academic side of Things, studied environmental engineering, and got my degree in that, and then also was lucky enough to be able to play and participate in the club side of things for University of Nevada. That's kind of the, the playing path, and then um, also while in school got involved with a local club called Nevada Elite here, and that's kind of when I really fell in love with coaching, and so one of my former youth coaches had kind of just asked me to come out to a session and see what was going on with their academy kids. Yeah, the rest has kind of been, been history from there. Started... On the recreational side, I and mean, you have kind of been all across all ages, all, all levels of play, and now with 2008 girls and, and helping out with our academy at Nevada
11: United. So it sounds like the coaching bug overruled the engineering degree. Is that fair to say? It's
13: kind of complicated there, sir. So, Boy, I am a full time engineer. I'm a full time environmental engineer and do the coaching gig uh, in the non-business hours of the day and weekends. So they both coexist in my life at the moment, but hopefully the coaching gig will uh, see what I can do full-time one day.
11: Where do you work? What do you do?
13: So I work in Reno, Nevada for an environmental engineering consulting firm, and it's kind of a question of what we don't do, um, to be honest. It's pretty broad field. Here in northern Nevada, there's a lot of interesting industry and manufacturing that's going on. Um, Nevada is one of the biggest mining states in in the country, so we do a lot of uh, environmental compliance support and making sure that facilities and mining is done in a responsible way to the environment, so no, you know, human health or environmental impacts are made. And then also we kind of facilitate a lot of environmental compliance and design support for some of the upcoming industry sector in northern Nevada. So Tesla's Gigafactory is here. We support them as well as um, some other really cool up and coming facilities. So it's very broad scope. I focus on the air quality side of things. So uh, making sure that ambient air isn't impacted and
11: doing air dispersion modeling. So it's a, it's, it's interesting. Every
13: day is a new day and uh, it never gets boring. That's
11: for sure. I actually like that you're doing both. So there's no reason why you can't keep doing both. Of course, you know, my vote doesn't really count for sure, Allie. But I do need to know, though, as you're thinking about being a part of this 30 under 30 program, a lot of times it's these people that list 50 different ways they've coached. I'm hoping that you included the fact that you are this environmental engineer because i got to believe the United Soccer Coaches thought that was pretty cool too. How did you go about with the application? Did you include that on there? You know, I honestly i am trying to
13: remember. I, I think I did um, as far as kind of uh, obviously my – my soccer path kind of took an unexpected turn, as I kind of mentioned, with finding out I had this condition, so a lot of time and energy that, you know, was always focused on my playing side and the athletics, and not that I was never not concerned with academics, but I was kind of able to, I feel, jump in with both feet and pursue a, a degree that is pretty time-consuming, so I, I think I did include that in there just as far as, you know, my, my focus changed and all things happen for a reason wouldn't be where I am unless unless they did, so uh, I did include that somewhat, just explaining the Interesting story and how it didn't go according to plan, but I don't know any story that does, so.
11: What was the kind of tipping point for you to, hey, let's say, let me check on my heart. What did they tell you and where does that leave you today?
13: Growing up, never had any, any health issues, health concerns of any kind. My freshman year after playing at San Francisco, I came back and was actually trying to walk on to the University of Nevada and was going through my, my screening and my physical, and it was actually when I was going and getting an EKG that the trainer had said, hey, we think the machine's broken. We're going to need you to come back. So that's when I did. Uh, I went back in, and they realized that the machine wasn't broken but that my uh, EKG was pretty irregular with some of the signs that they were getting. So they immediately referred me to a cardiologist, and that cardiologist in Reno referred me to a specialized clinic at Stanford for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Of course, as a 18-year-old, I felt invincible at the time and had no kind of recollection of what, what that meant, but I did go down to Stanford and an amazing team in a specialized clinic for this condition, and it's essentially uh, overgrowth of the heart muscle, in particular the left ventricle. You know, a lot of times it may be matched as athlete's heart, and you know, athlete's hearts are, are trained well, and they're, they're muscles that can be built up, and so they thought potentially that may be the case, but I did have some issues with uh, passing out a couple times, and that was definitely a red flag I think, for everyone. So, I went down to this clinic, did a series of diagnostic tests, and at that time, they they confirmed that, you know, they believed this to be this condition that can be pretty serious as far as a lot of times it's seen with athletes, sudden cardiac death and arrest. So, uh, not trivial, but as my 18-year-old stubborn self felt just so foreign to me because I never had any issues. So, they essentially told me that I was no longer clear to play and uh, activities that involve a lot of sudden start and stop like we all know soccer does. So that was uh, news to me and obviously Stanford doctors don't know what they're talking about. So I came back to Reno and was playing against their advice, and I ended up passing out again. And at that time, everyone kind of decided the best thing to do would um, be to proceed with getting a, a defibrillator implant. So I actually have an ICD uh, implanted. from uh, it's been kind of history, but the team at, at Stanford is absolutely amazing, and they have a pretty special clinic and people involved, and, I, and there are a lot of people. My my story is unfortunately not, not unique, and, and it actually is pretty common for, for athletes. So it's, it's kind of a, a weird weird turn of events but that's what happened and how it all unfolded and I think honestly it kind of helped really solidify my love for the game and how to how to get involved in other ways And, and coaching was definitely a great opportunity to do that.
11: Well that's a very personal story. I appreciate you being candid and sharing that with us and not letting that issue get in the way of pursuing your dreams of you know both being an environmental engineer and also being a coach as we mentioned you're coaching the 2008 class you also work with the academy what do you love most about coaching young women
13: i don't even know where to begin i think uh working at the youth level is just so rewarding as far as the growth that you get to see in such a short period of time i mean they are like sponges from the age of five on as soon as they can start to listen and somewhat absorb some energy and direction, trying to instill a sense of confidence in them from, you know, the early ages of like, hey, there is no boundary, there is no limit, like, Let's go get it. Let's be creative. Let's make some mistakes and let's, let's see where this takes us. And so working with young girls in particular, it's just awesome because I think it's a great place for them to showcase, you know, their skills, be involved, learn lessons that go beyond the field as far as working with people through adversity. Just super rewarding because I think you get to see the, the labor of your love just because they grow so quickly, such a short period of time.
11: You mentioned that word rewarding. What's been the most rewarding part of being a part of United Soccer Coaches 30 under 30 class?
13: Definitely just the networking. I I mean, I think soccer people generally like soccer people, and so this is just a way to concentrate a group of like minded individuals who, I mean, going to a convention and being around some of these other other coaches, it's just been incredible because the connections and the relationships and then seeing kind of – how, I mean, this association really, really brings together coaches from all over, all walks of life, all levels of play. It was really neat. And that was kind of the takeaway for me from the convention was just
11: these are relationships that will last a lifetime. Allie, you've got a unique and dynamic background. I totally loved hearing your story. I love actually that you are doing both coaching and maximizing your degree. As an environmental engineer, really enjoyed getting to know you, Allie. Thanks so much, and wish you all the best of luck.
13: Thanks, Dean. Have a great day.
1: I'll do just that. It was a big show, a long show. I hope you stayed with us for each and every special guest, all the great folks at ECNL, John Trask and Chris Mueller, Trevor Banks, the new man at Chicago State, and our two thirty 30-under-30s. For Michael Knipper, Sean Chevrolet and all the good folks at United Soccer Coaches, I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you next week.